0: Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 238. This is your host Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lendit Fintech Conference. Today's episode is sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th at the Javits Center in New York City. Lending and banking are converging, and LendIt Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. LendIt Fintech. Lending and banking connected. Go to LendIt.com USA to register. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Adam Jiwan. He is the founder, CEO, and chairman of Spring Labs. Now, Spring Labs is a relatively new company. They've only been around a couple of years, and they have big, audacious goals. I wanted to get Adam on the on the show to, to talk about this. They're really looking at retooling how personal data gets shared, how it gets stored, and how companies verify information on consumers and small businesses. And so we get we go into that in some depth. We talk about the you know, how it works, go through an example. It's somewhat complex, but Adam was able to explain it in pretty simple terms so anyone can understand it. And we talk about where they are in the in the process of getting out to production, talk about the different partners, some of them they can share publicly and uh, we also talk about what his vision for the future of, of credit data is. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I want to get started by just giving the listeners some background. You've had uh, uh, an interesting career with uh, a variety of different uh, companies, it looks like. so. Why don't you tell us what you did? Give us some of the highlights before Spring Labs.
1: Sure. So for nearly 20 years, I've had the opportunity to develop my career uh, at the intersection of business building and investing in financial services. And through the course of these experiences, I got to assist in the development of the real estate finance industry in Brazil, helps introduce student finance in Europe, uh, as a co-founder and, and chairman of a company called Future Finance, I've backed a myriad of online and innovative financial technology companies in the U.S., including being one of the largest seed investors of Avant, uh, now Amount. And in all of these different experiences, uh, Peter, I came to appreciate that in this digital era, data is the lifeblood of any financial institution. And I think that's probably pretty well understood that, you know, data is the new oil, as it were, Mm -hmm. Uh, but scratching beneath the surface uh, really came to develop an understanding of the underlying plumbing, i.e., where does this data relating to credit identity come from? Who owns it? Who has the right to it? Where do they get it from? Who shares it? Who doesn't share it? Why and why not? And in that plumbing, my partners and I saw significant amounts of fragility And frankly, a number of things that we found to be quite broken.
0: Okay, so then you you found things that were broken. And then what were the steps involved in really founding Spring Labs? And how, how did the idea kind of come about exactly?
1: Sure. So just at the highest level, let me just share with you what Spring Labs is all about. Okay. We're trying to reinvent how information is gathered, shared, and monetized in the financial services industry by deploying decentralized infrastructure. And we hope that that will drive much greater accuracy, much greater security, much greater consumer privacy, and in doing so, frankly, we think we can actually make a dent on things like financial inclusion. Mm -hmm. And we came to this, to answer your question, because we were lenders ourselves. And we were ingesting vast amounts of data to do things like identity verification as well as assessing creditworthiness. And when we were looking at where we were gathering this data from, we saw a system That had a number of issues. And and let me just run you through what those issues were. Again, we saw security being a major issue. We saw that accuracy was a major issue because the participants in this ecosystem are generally a pretty narrow set of retail lenders. So a lot of the information, for instance, that you might see on a traditional credit report, they don't actually include things like your assets or -hmm. your income Mm -hmm. or alternate forms of credit performance data. If you're a renter, do you pay your rent on time? Do you pay your utilities or your insurance or your subscriptions on time? So accuracy was an issue. We saw a system that was very vulnerable to fraud, especially from the more pernicious forms of fraud, like synthetic identity fraud, meaning fraudsters could not only just take data out of these databases of, let's say, credit bureaus and others, but they could actually stuff synthetic files into those same places, uh, which could create significant vulnerabilities for lenders such as ourselves. And then we also saw a real misalignment of incentives. As as you likely know, the most valuable businesses in the world today are the business of hoarding private data about each and every one of us and monetizing it. Mm -hmm. And it's no different within the credit and identity world. Centralized data aggregators are in the hoarding data business. And so when they want to sell it, for instance, to a financial institution, let's say for identity verification, they don't provide all of the underlying data itself. They don't provide the provenance of that data. They don't provide linkages of, of, of where that data was seen with what other pieces of data. They basically give you a score and a probability and a thumbs up, thumbs down, because they don't want to lose on to their precious oil. Right. So we saw a misalignment of incentives because we as financial institutions or lenders, when we were in that business, wanted the most granular information possible to inform our models to actually make the best risk decisions we could for our companies. And then finally, the way this system works today there's very little respect for consumer privacy. There's a vast amount of sensitive, personally identifiable information that floats around any time anyone applies for any product, uh, because so many different verifications need to take place on a point-by-point basis. So we saw a system that was not only fragile, but had a number of significant issues, and we wondered to ourselves whether there was a technology, frankly, that could be brought to bear... To deliver the elements of an ideal solution,
0: right, right, that makes sense. And not to, you didn't even mention the hacks that have happened in, the, in these, uh, you know, where the exposure of all of the all of this uh, this data has uh, has got into nefarious hands. So uh, that's another, yeah, another absolutely,
1: reason. <laughs> absolutely. And, and so that's what I meant by security, which is, was my first point, was exactly right. that, which is if you're in the hoarding business, you are taking vast amounts of sensitive information, putting it into a database. That database grows ever larger and represents an incredibly juicy attack vector. And the truth is, the moat around that database, no matter how wide, can be breached. Because once you break into the filing cabinet, you've got everything, right? And so we believe that there needs to be a fundamental rethinking on security architecture, again, uh, in order to create a much sort of safer ecosystem for both consumers, frankly, and lenders.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so then let's dig into that. Let's, let's dig into exactly what you're trying to do here. Maybe you can you know, try and explain in, 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 in as simple terms as possible what, uh, what Spring Labs is about.
1: Absolutely. So uh, we are trying to transform how information is exchanged within the financial services industry with security and consumer privacy as paramount considerations. So we are developing a network that is an information exchange. And so what we're trying to enable – is financial institutions and others that have credit-relevant or identity-relevant information to share information with one another directly, i.e. not mediated by centralized data aggregators or credit bureaus or the like, i.e. just directly with one another. And when they do exchange information, they receive value. In the current system, there is what we call a give-to-get model, which is retail lenders today give away their hard-earned, credit and identity data for free to many of these centralized data aggregators, like the credit bureaus, because they can't share information directly with their competitors. Mm -hmm. So they share it with these middlemen who aggregate the data together and resell it right back to those same lenders that gave it to them. And so it was a wonky system when we were in the lending business. We really disliked it because we lost ownership and control of our credit and identity data. And so when the Spring Lab sort of network We are trying to foster the enabling conditions for direct sharing among institutions, which means that there needs to be a flow of incentives. So if an institution is sharing information, they're not giving it away for free. They're receiving value, number one. Number two, they're doing it with very high security and consumer privacy assurances. So, for instance, personally identifiable information does not leave the firewall of a participating institution in our network. And from a security perspective, again, plain text data is not sort of shared within sort of like the network. And that doesn't mean that it's encrypted. It tends to be hashed and salted. And we use a series of anonymization technologies, again, to address the competitive sensitivities that have prevented this form of sharing in the past. Mm -hmm. To go to your question about an example, though, I think that might be very useful. Yeah, for sure. So let's say, Peter, you were applying for a product prior to sort of the Spring Network. Uh, and you're applying for a new credit at, at J.P. Morgan. The first thing that J.P. Morgan needs to do is verify you're the person you're purporting to be. And they typically do that by not just doing it manually, but going to a number of vendors. So that could be a new star. It could be a credit bureau. And again, let's use the simplest example where they're trying to just verify one identity field, your phone number. So they typically go to a party and they ask, is Peter's phone number X? And and that party, because they don't want to give the financial institution the underlying data itself, typically will say thumbs up, thumbs down with a probability score. And this can be true across a number of identity or other factors as well. And so the challenges with that system are several fold. The first is you're relying upon one party. That party can be compromised, meaning someone can change literally what's in the database because it can be overwritten, i.e. think about synthetic identity fraud. The second is, uh, the most pernicious forms of fraud that exist today often take place by stitching together real identity factors that are for real people with a fraudster's, for instance, bank account. And so if you're just doing point to point on a single identity factor, you're missing granular information, linkages among information, i.e. where was that phone number seen with what address, with what IP address, and with what bank account. You're not getting that kind of information, and you're not getting the provenance of that information, i.e. how and when did that data aggregator obtain that information. So that's the old system. Under the Spring Network, we employ an entirely different concept, which is rather than going to a data hoarder, you ping the network, and let's say 30 different institutions, many of whom might be regulated to their permission, may have had an experience with Peter and Peter's phone number. And without actually revealing your phone number, because it's hashed with an entropy factor, and without actually using any of your PII, those 30-plus institutions that may have had an experience with you within, say, the past six months can come back and say, yes, what we have matches what you have, number one. And number two, we've actually seen it with the following other identity factors, with the following provenance. So let's compare scenario one with scenario two. In scenario one, you're relying upon one party for what's truth and that party can be compromised. In addition to that, you are not obtaining the underlying granular information, linkages with other identity factors, or the provenance of that information. In the second scenario, you're getting the benefit of multiple parties attesting to the veracity of a piece of information. You're obtaining the granular information, the provenance of the information, and the linkages of information, deriving what we believe is much greater accuracy. And similarly, as I mentioned in that verification case, Peter's PII, for instance, is never leaving and never crossing on the network. And as such, it's actually a system that should be fundamentally more secure. And it's one that actually should respect Peter's consumer privacy, which we think you have a right to. So that's a very simplistic illustration of the world before the Spring Network and the world after it as we envision it.
0: Right. So just so I'm clear, then you are really not... You're not taking any data. You're really enabling connections between the pieces of the network. So the data, there's no central repository because each each of the thirty parties you said have their own. You're just they're picking their own database internally, and so you've obviously written code that that, that enables them to do that. And then as I said, there's no PII going back and forth. So basically, this this seems like a far better system because I mean the biggest thing is there's. The way I look at it is, there's no central repository, and um, and everything I imagine, all, all these databases are also being updated in real time. So your credit report, you know, it doesn't, it, it still doesn't get updated in real time. Whereas, I mean, that maybe you can comment on that. Is that is that the case for the, th- you're, the example?
1: You're absolutely right. So uh, about a couple of things. The first is we are not a centralized repository of data because that would create another attack vector. Okay. Rather, we are the pipes or the plumbing, or the infrastructure that connects all of these parties together to enable them to share information and value with one another. So if you think about our business model, it's something akin to a Federal Express, right? Federal Express mediates the exchange of packages and value, but FedEx doesn't open those packages, they don't retain those packages, and they don't monetize those packages, right? Mm -hmm. So effectively, the Spring Network is a set of infrastructures or pipes among institutions that give them security and consumer privacy assurances and that uh, enables a flow of monetary incentives so that finally, rather than giving away your information on credit and identity for free to like Equifax, when you're finally sharing it with your competitors, you're actually receiving value. And frankly, the anonymization technologies that we introduce are what enable this as well because otherwise you wouldn't be willing to share with your competitors. Um, And so one of your comments also resonated a little bit, which is over the past several years that, you know, at first when we were noodling on whether we could actually have this technology get adopted, because as you know, there's something you can develop technology, but if it's never adopted, it's sort of worthless, right? right? And we're dealing with a highly regulated, compliance-minded industry. You know, we spent a lot of time speaking with chief risk officers, Uh, chief credit officers, CEOs, CTOs, uh, CISOs, uh, financial institutions, financial technology companies, and every single one of them said that this type of architecture, right, this decentralized infrastructure that employs the concept of multi-party attestation and yet minimal disclosure, meaning no PII across the network, was the type of architecture that makes tremendous sense in the world. Now, Mm -hmm. the challenge that we have, having a chicken and egg problem is, can we drive sufficient adoption for this to actually become something that's ubiquitous.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. So then, maybe just talk on that. And obviously, you you have Avant on board because you this this you know Spring Labs was born out of Avant. But how how have you gone with the other consumer lenders?
1: Sure. So last February, we announced uh, partnerships with 16 leading financial technology companies and lenders. I think we named some of those. They included companies like Sofi, Cabbage, OnDeck, of course, Avant. GM Financial, Funding Circle, and some others. Since then, we've added dozens of other partners. Some of those partners include trillion-dollar-plus asset institutions and very much household names. We will be making an announcement in the coming months about you know where we are with those partnerships and and the rate of growth, which we're very very pleased with. But yeah, I think adoption is coming along uh, quite well.
0: Okay, yeah, because I mean it, it makes sense to me. I mean, the the it, this is a twenty first century solution to a uh, you know to what has uh, been really an un like we look at look at the twentieth century and the credit bureau, you know, infrastructure is is pretty much unchanged. It feels like at least. I shouldn't say that completely, but they've made, they've made enhancements. The, the core, the core way they do things still seems to be the same. And in fact, let, and let just maybe just talk about that for a second, because on your homepage there, right in the middle of the homepage, you say Spring Labs, the un-bureau. So how do you kind of
1: view,
0: do you view yourself as a replacement for the credit bureaus or how do you kind of, what's your relationship with them? Sure.
1: So, you know, I think we tend to try to be realistic about things. The credit bureaus have been around for many, many decades, and they have a treasure trove of specifically retail credit performance data. We are an early stage company that is two years old. So the notion that we can come in and disrupt an industry that's been around for a long period of time and that is supported by a highly regulated industry is not necessarily realistic in the first instance. Okay. Mm -hmm. That said, the reason we refer to ourselves as the UNGURO is that we aren't a centralized repository of data and therefore an attack vector. We are an information exchange that is fundamentally aligned with the interests of financial institutions because when their sensitive data never leaves their firewall, it means they finally retain ownership and control of their data. And when they share information, they're not sharing the underlying data. They're sharing an attestation, which is uh, something a little bit sort of different. Mm -hmm. And they actually get paid for it. So we're flipping the system on its head. So we're an unbureau in the sense that we're not a hoarder of data. We believe in facilitating the safe sharing of data in a much broader universe than exists today. In terms of adoption, in your question about we view ourselves as a replacement to the bureaus and what our relationship is with them, the first is we are introducing products on our information exchange that do things we believe meaningfully better than what the bureaus could do today and they tend to relate to enhanced identity verification or income verification or fraud prevention right they're a little bit less uh, related to credit decisioning. over time if we're able to drive sufficient adoption it's very conceivable that we will get into of course credit as well because it's a natural extension once you have the same parties around the table. Mm -hmm. And in terms of where our relationship is, we see a lot of different avenues to collaborate with the bureaus themselves. And of course, there are some states of the node where this becomes highly disruptive uh, as well. But I think our general approach, like with most market participants, is to be collaborative and not antagonistic. And we are actively working with some of the bureaus today on a number of quite innovative things.
0: Okay, that's good to hear. Okay, so we're we're over halfway through this interview, and we haven't mentioned the word blockchain yet. And I think that's interesting to me because uh, you, I mean, this is uh, you've developed your Spring Protocol. It's a blockchain-based technology. Can you sort of just talk about? the blockchain is integral to what you're doing, I presume. So maybe just talk about why you decided to use blockchain as opposed to to some other kind of, of, of way to implement this.
1: Sure. So I'm very aware that we're a sort of blockchain, sort of like nuclear winter from a perception <laughs> perspective. Right. Uh, but blockchain is not something that we shy away from. Though I will explain that there are three sort of core components to our tech stack. There's blockchain, there's a series of advanced cryptography, and then our client software. And I'll explain each in turn. So blockchain actually in distributed ledger technology can be quite powerful in a lot of different ways at scale. At the scale that we're considering in a permission network, blockchain plays several relevant roles. The first in permissioning, right? So adding sort of new nodes, adding new participants, permissioning is a place where blockchain can be very useful. The second is, Creating an immutable record of the receipt and exchange of information. So, think about an index over time of all of the information that's been out there on an individual or on a business. Because, again, we're doing things that go beyond just consumer. And then, thirdly, it can actually serve as a ledger around value exchange as well. So, those are the three ways in which blockchain will be utilized near run. At scale, there are a lot of other things that blockchain can do, but those are the ways that we use them in the first instance. The second piece of the technology stack is advanced cryptography. So what is the reason that JP Morgan doesn't share information with Bank of America and markets today? One is there are some regulatory prohibitions on sharing PII between institutions for certain purposes. Fine. But the other also is this notion of competitive sensitivity that if Peter were applying to JP Morgan, JP Morgan wants to know whether HSBC had a good experience with Peter. JP Morgan can't just directly ask HSBC at the time you're applying because HSBC would realize you're applying for a new product and try to poach you. Mm -hmm. So our technology uses advanced cryptography and secret sharing type technologies to address competitive sensitivity. And that's a really important part of our special sauce, frankly. And then the third is client software, which is if we went... To a bunch of banks and said, "Hey, we've got this nifty uh, information exchange that obfuscates competitive sensitivity and it's secure and it's private, but it involves black blockchain and, and, and really crazy uh, cryptography. Financial institutions will roll their eyes and say we have no idea what to do with it. So we needed to have client software that would deal with data standardization, that would actually do the cryptographic transforms, so again that no sensitive information leaves." the firewall of a participant or a financial institution. And similarly on the way in, they can take the cryptographic information, transform it and put it into something useful for either their decisioning or fraud model or however the financial institution might want to use that information.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So then you've mentioned, obviously, you're in consumer lending. Uh, you've talked about um, small business, uh, some of the names you mentioned earlier. And I also I read somewhere uh, about a real estate uh, deal that you guys were in. So what, what verticals are you focused on?
1: Sure. So ultimately, our technology is generalizable and global. So it can be used in a number of industries beyond financial services. So it can be used for... Anonymizing the exchange of HIPAA compliant medical records or genomic sequences. It can be used for verifications or authentications between humans and IoT. So you can just think about, you know, the types of use cases it can use for generalized private communication. We are not spending any of our time on any of those other verticals, even though we've had inbound interest simply because we would be boiling the ocean. So our mm. entire focus is in financial services, number one. And initially on things that relate to consumer and small business, because that's where we think we understand some of the problem sets and how to deliver real world solutions to lenders and others. And if we can prove and create, prove that it, you know, creates value and works again, we think that there are many different ways to sort of expand the value of this network. Mm -hmm. You know, during the course of 2020, we are going to be launching a number of different products and those products, for instance, within consumer, Relate to enhanced identity verification, income verification, and certain fraud prevention tools like fraud registries as well as loan stacking tools. In small business, where there's even less information sharing that takes place because there's no real great bureau out there. Ultimately, uh, we will be again sort of delivering some of these similar types of fraud and identity and business identity related sort of tools this year. And then the third is the property lien registry that you referenced which was an RFP that we won for PACE lenders, where we think that technology can ultimately be used to create registries of ownership. So if you think about, you know, natural uses for blockchain, like obviating the need for title insurance, you know, this type of technology is one that, you know, not only could lead to that, but frankly could also accelerate the adoption of that because Mm -hmm. it's not that the technology can't be used, it's how do you change behaviors to drive adoption. Right, right.
0: Okay, so then where are you at today? Do you, I mean, I presume you have you have pilots running, as you said, there's a chicken and egg problem, but it sounds like you've got a few chickens running around now with all of the partners that you've got signed up. So are you in production with multiple partners today? Is this still a pilot that people are running? Is anyone, is anyone doing their identity verification through Spring Labs and that's it? I mean, where are you at? Sure,
1: so it's so, a so great question. So just uh, as, a, as a means of clarification, nothing that we're doing is in a pilot phase and nothing that we're doing will be a pilot. Everything is going immediately into production. Okay. So we have commenced the technical integration process with some of our partners. And again, imagine for a second, we're putting technology behind firewalls of highly regulated compliance-minded <laughs> institutions, right. and therefore we need to be SOC 2 compliant, which we are. We needed to have the best-in-class sort of penetration testing. We needed to have some of the best and brightest minds around security architecture, which, you know, I can describe the background of some of our people. as pretty extraordinary. But then we also have to sort of, you know, understand and deal with thousand-question info security sort of questionnaires. We need to get on the roadmap for technology development as well as, to be on the roadmap, you know, from a risk perspective with all of our partners. And so the process of getting integrated, you know, takes some period of time. We've commenced that process. We think by the end of the second quarter, we'll have eight to nine institutions, all household names starting to trade data. And over the course of 2020, we're targeting something like 30 institutions to be integrated into the network, even though the number of partnerships, of course, is continuing to grow well, well beyond that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what about in the alternative lending space? I mean, if I if I go and take out a loan at Avant today, uh, is is there Spring Labs uh, technology in, in that process yet? No,
1: not yet. Okay. So, we expect uh, trading of data to commence towards the end of the second quarter of this year, and to continue ramping up as we add, uh, you know, additional scale players, because the folks that we've been adding more recently. are are quite sizable sort of institutions. And so, again, when we make an announcement later, I think it'll become more obvious as to where the overlaps will exist. But we we view the next call at 12 to 18 months as the rubber hitting the road on usage revenue generation and really sort of proving that this new model for information exchanging works and importantly adds value for our customers.
0: Right, okay, fair enough. So then maybe give us a sense of the scale you're at. Like how many, how many employees do you have? What's, um, where are your offices? That sort of thing.
1: Sure. So uh, at this point, we're roughly 55 employees. Almost everyone is based in Los Angeles and Marina Del Rey. Uh, we've raised capital uh, to the tune of just shy of $40 million through a Series A uh, from last year. And, you know, I think the majority of the team, I think about two thirds are engineers or cryptographers. And at this point, everyone's head down because, you know, we've developed these longstanding relationships with these partners that have been actually involved in developing the product. So it's not just sort of partnership in name. They've been actively involved in that development process with us for the past year or so. And so now we're just literally trying to deploy the technology and flip the switch and continue to iterate on product because there are a whole slew of use cases beyond the ones we're bringing to market this year that we think are going to add increasing value to, to, to lenders, frankly, and others over time.
0: Mm-hmm. So then what, what's the business model exactly? How, how are you guys going to make money? Is it going to be like, is this a, a SaaS product or is this like a transaction-based revenue generation? How is it going to work?
1: So, so great question. You know, when we started the business, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about business models. And again, because of the experience that I've had in the past of of looking and investing in many different companies, we wanted to build a very durable, compelling business model. And so to share at least our revenue model is, again, we're this information exchange. So let's say when Avance is sharing information with Prosper, Marlette, Marcus, uh, and, you know, making it a cabbage random sort of collection here – In that sort of scenario, when information is exchanged, the sharing party receives value. And we receive some portion of that value. So we are a toll collector on the network, which means we're not charging setup fees or monthly sort of subscriptions or anything along those lines. Our interest is fundamentally aligned with the volume of information that flows through our pipes. And so we think that aligns our interest with financial institutions who want more information And we also think it's a good business model because it's one that at scale requires very limited capital intensity, right? We're not in the lending business where we have to put equity into each of the loans. And so at scale, it's a business that ought to have high margins. It is a business that ought to have very strong operating leverage. It's a business that should not be cyclical, frankly, in any meaningful way. And it should be a business that doesn't require significant amounts of capital to be raised over time. Again, we we'll, may need to raise capital at some point down the road, but again, we shouldn't be a serial uh, sort of capital raiser for this business. So we think it's a good business model, but of course there's a lot of work to do to get it to scale and, and, and prove out that this vision of ours is uh, is going to work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, we're almost out of time. Just but a couple more things I want to get to. You know, you have um, some very high-profile advisors uh, with your company, one, you know, Gary Cohn, who uh, was uh, was with um, the, the Trump administration earlier and obviously a very well-respected uh, executive in financial services. So maybe th- how how were you able to get Gary Cohn on board?
1: Sure. So uh, you're right. I think we, we do have an incredible advisory board. And in most cases, these are people who uh, have either backed businesses of ours in the past, like Nigel Morris, who co-founded Capital One, or with whom i've sat on boards before so sheila bear and i sat on a board together for years bobby Mehta, who was the ceo of transunion for many years still on the board of transunion uh, he and i sat on a board for a long time these are people who have looked at what it is we're trying to do and believe that this is the way of the future for exchanging information mm-hmm. in the case of gary when he left the administration you know a couple of us had this thought that you know this is uh, a business that we're developing that requires not only understanding of technology and how it can be deployed in a commercial context, but also how it sort of can exist in a broader and evolving regulatory environment. And Gary was someone having been president of Goldman Sachs and then the chair of the National Economic Council, a person who really couldn't understand better the relationship between commercial activity and evolving regulation. And so, Uh, As it turns out, we had a mutual friend, one of his former partners from Goldman had backed another business I started. He introduced us, and we had breakfast in New York. And when I explained to him what we were developing, he immediately understood two very interesting use cases for the Spring Protocol. One was in effectively crowdsourcing alternate forms of credit performance data and other forms of data that don't find their way into the system, like the asset side of your balance sheet from asset from asset or investment managers, or your income or employment. And so if we were able to, the flow of incentives of our system, as well as security and privacy assurances, create a more vibrant ecosystem of data sharing, then all of a sudden you could start tackling major societal level problems like thin file customers or no file customers who are caught Mm -hmm. in this vicious cycle of, not having credit, therefore, can't, or not having traditional retail credit, therefore, not having any you know retail credit performance history, therefore, can't get credit, right? And so uh, he understood the power at scale of what we were doing to drive financial inclusion, and the other was that he understood that how some of these technologies could actually be used to identify you know real problems through the cycle for regulators. So I think it immediately resonated with him and uh, and he's been a terrific advisor and as have all of our advisors because they've been uniquely involved frankly in ways that in other companies I've been involved with They've been much more passive, you know. Even at the board levels, uh, we've been quite blessed to have some great people involved.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's really really great. So, last question then: you, you know, let's assume you guys are wildly successful and all of your plans come to fruition, and we have this real time system. Where does that? I'm, I'm curious about where does that leave the credit bureaus, and what? And where does that leave the individual? And And how they, you know, like they're still not really owning their data. Maybe the question is like, what is the, what's the future of credit data in your, in your vision? Sure.
1: So I think that's uh, a, a great question. And I would answer it from two different perspectives. The first is we would like to see the world moving away from a siloed hoarding mentality to one where you can have safe sharing with high security and consumer privacy, And frankly, that applies within financial services and credit, but frankly, in the broadest sense. And that is a big thing that sort of motivates us every day. The second is, and this is something that we intend to add over time, but we chose not to do it because we think we get to scale faster, starting with enterprises. We absolutely want to have consumers in the loop. And we want consumers to be in the loop for several reasons. The first is we want them to have transparency and much better transparency than they have today with the existing system. The second is we want them to have better user experience, especially around contestability. Again, if you've ever tried to contest a bureau these days, it's a a complete nightmare. And the third is, in many cases, we actually want consumers to have some amount of control and actual ownership over their data. And the reason why I say some rather than all, because I think there's often this uh, notion that consumers should own everything, the truth is they should own their identity. And so they should be compensated, in fact, when some of their information ultimately is used. And again, we think our network can actually accomplish that over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, perhaps that shouldn't be the case with credit performance data because you shouldn't be able to delete, you know, the, you know, the time you actually forgot to pay, for instance. So <laughs> right. it's not a universal thing, but the general idea is we want to see the world moving away from these data hoarding silos to safe sharing. And we want to see a world where consumers are in the loop with privacy and some degree of control, in dramatically better user experience and transparency.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that is a wonderful vision, and I hope we I hope we are able to get there this decade. It's uh, it would be it would be great <laughs> great great for, great for uh, so many of us. Anyway, we'll have to leave it there, Adam. I really appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: No, my pleasure, Peter. Really appreciate your inviting us. Okay. See ya. All right. Thanks
0: you know i think even the credit bureaus would acknowledge that the future of credit and personal identifying information that is it's not stored in a centralized database i really i think the way we have it set up today is, uh, if not broken, it's certainly in need for improvement. What Spring Labs has got is, I think, a pretty compelling case for one of the visions that could actually come to fruition when it comes to how this all this information is stored and, and how access to it works. And I think we have uh, a long way to go before they get there. I think you know, and Adam acknowledges that as well. They are not ready for prime time yet, But I think they're getting there, whether it's Spring Labs or somebody else. I really feel like we are going to have a decentralized system. I think it's going to happen this decade. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by LendIt Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th at the Javits Center in New York City. Lending and banking are converging and LendIt Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. LendIt Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to LendIt.com USA to register.